Picture this, if you will. You're working the night shift at the local emergency department of a college town, and you see a 21-year-old college student brought to the emergency department by his resident advisor. He's barely arousable, smells of alcohol, and appears to have vomited all over himself. However, he is breathing regularly and doesn't appear to have aspirated his own vomit. So you tell his resident advisor that he likely just needs to be observed until he's sober enough to return to his dorm. But the resident advisor confides that this isn't the first time your patient's gotten drunk and ended up at a hospital. Furthermore, the university made it clear last time that if it happened again, he'd lose his on-campus housing. While binge drinking is fairly common amongst college students, you consider the disproportionate impact alcohol has had on your patient's life. And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing psychiatry from our bricks to your ears. After completing this section, you'll be able to 1. Describe the etiology and epidemiology of alcohol use disorder. 2. List the most commonly used forms of alcohol in the United States and their associated potency, delivery method, and physiologic effects. 3. Describe the DSM-5 diagnostic features and criteria for alcohol use disorder, as well as the clinical effects of both long- and short-term use. And four, describe the evidence-based assessment and treatment approaches for alcohol use disorder. Alcohol is one of the most widely used psychoactive substances in the world, and I say this realizing that by labeling alcohol as a psychoactive substance, I've definitely added myself as a square— But unlike illegal drugs like heroin and methamphetamine, alcohol use is socially acceptable in most countries. And as a result, there's often a large gray area where the patient may not realize that their recreational alcohol consumption has crossed the line into alcohol use disorder. A large part of our discussion today centers around how we as physicians can help identify and treat problematic alcohol use. Part 1. What is alcohol use disorder? Alcohol use disorder, or AUD, is broadly defined as pervasive alcohol use that affects daily functioning. We'll talk about the specific diagnostic criteria later in the episode, but that's really what it boils down to. As with other forms of substance abuse, physicians also take into account the progression, causes, risk factors, and physical consequences of the individual patient's alcohol consumption. Let's talk about some of the features of alcohol addiction so we can better understand how to approach it in clinic. Part 2. How common is alcohol use disorder? One thing that surprises a lot of people is just how common the problem is. Roughly 6.2% of the U.S. population 18 years or older meets diagnostic criteria for AUD. And nearly 25% of adults report having alcohol-related problems or at-risk drinking behaviors. And while regular binge drinking may seem almost like a rite of passage for young adults, a lot of these individuals actually have clinically problematic drinking patterns. Nearly 2.5% of adolescents, 16.2% aged 18 to 29 years, and a whopping 20% of college students meet diagnostic criteria for AUD. Fortunately, most adolescents and young adults normalize their alcohol consumption later in life. But early problematic drinking can lead to the development of AUD, and the peak age at onset is in the early to mid-20s. In addition to being more common in young adults, AUD tends to be more prevalent among men than women, at 12.4% versus only 4.9%. And while this may just seem like a negative stereotype, about 12.1% of Native Americans fit the criteria for alcohol use disorder, about twice the general population. But to put that in context, that's still less than the prevalence of the male population. Way to go, fellas. These differences across demographics may be due to both environmental and genetic factors. It's also worth noting that AUD is a variable course. 
periods of remission and relapse often coincide with stressors and social influences over the course of a person's life. So, just to see if you were paying attention, when is the peak age for development of alcohol use disorder? The answer is in a patient's early to mid-20s. Part 3. What causes alcohol use disorder? According to some studies, genetic factors account for up to 50% of the variability in the risk of developing AUD. But of course, psychosocial factors also play an important role. Certain personality traits like extroversion, neuroticism, and impulsivity can predispose patients to risky drinking. Other potential influences on the development of alcohol problems include trouble coping with stress, heavier peer substance abuse, and exaggerated positive expectations about the effects of alcohol. Cultural attitudes towards drinking and intoxication, the availability and price of alcohol, personal experiences with alcohol, and stress levels are also environmental risk and prognostic factors for AUD. Essentially, when you combine an environment where alcohol use is prevalent with a psychological predisposition to AUD, you're much more likely to develop problematic drinking habits. One reason alcohol can be so addictive is the effect it has on our brains. In the central nervous system, glutamate acts as the primary excitatory neurotransmitter, and gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA, is the main inhibitory neurotransmitter. Alcohol indirectly stimulates GABA receptors, augmenting the inhibitory neurotransmitter activity. But with chronic use, endogenous glutamate production increases to compensate for GABA overstimulation. Withdrawal occurs when a chronic user stops overstimulating their GABA receptors with alcohol, and the excess excitatory glutamate activity leads to symptoms like agitation and anxiety. Now, probably more than a handful of you listening are well aware of the acute effects of alcohol intoxication— but the most life-threatening acute consequence is respiratory depression. Chronic alcohol abuse can lead to disorders of multiple different organ systems. The most well-known consequences are on the gastrointestinal system. Chronic alcohol abuse not only causes chronic liver failure and cirrhosis, but also acute hepatitis, gastritis, and pancreatitis. Aspiration pneumonia is very common in patients who abuse alcohol, and these patients have an increased risk of pathogens including Klebsiella and anaerobes from the GI tract, And these can cause some seriously nasty pneumonias that are often more life-threatening than their community-acquired counterparts. Patients who are severely alcohol-dependent may replace most of their calories from food with calories from alcohol, leading to malnutrition. It can also cause vitamin deficiencies like folate and thiamine deficiencies and electrolyte abnormalities like hyponatremia. In addition to its acute neurologic effects, chronic alcohol abuse can lead to permanent neurologic impairment. Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome is a neurologic disorder caused by thiamine deficiency, defined by confusion, ophthalmoplegia, and ataxia. Chronic alcohol abuse can also independently lead to the development of peripheral neuropathy. Finally, alcohol is probably the best-known carcinogen that we chronically abuse ourselves with, and chronic alcohol abuse is a risk factor for the development of squamous cell carcinoma of the mouth, larynx, and esophagus, as well as hepatocellular carcinoma in the liver. And those are just the physiologic consequences. Chronic abuse of alcohol is frequently associated with social consequences such as homelessness and incarceration. And the dependence on alcohol combined with these social stressors can keep patients trapped in a pattern of chronic abuse. Part 4. What are the most commonly used alcoholic agents? The drinks of choice in the United States include beer, wine, distilled liquor, and mixed beverages, though there are probably as many different types of alcoholic beverages as there are countries in the world. 
But the common psychoactive substance in almost all of them is ethyl alcohol, or ethanol. And as a result, alcohol consumption is often quantified in terms of standard drinks, equal to 0.6 ounces of pure ethanol. That's equivalent to a 12-ounce can of beer, a 5-ounce glass of wine, or a 1.5-ounce shot of liquor. Now, this can get a little tricky, since it assumes that beer is 5% ethanol, wine is 12%, and liquor is 40%. And I know that a lot of my favorite Belgian ales are probably closer to 10% ethanol, but it's at least a starting point when assessing alcohol intake. Now, obviously, alcohol is neither smoked nor injected. You drink it. Obviously. But unfortunately, since there have been some people who've died from this, I gotta address the phenomenon of butt-chugging. Turns out that alcohol consumption via rectal enema is a real phenomenon, and not just moral panic. But all you really have to know about it is that alcohol absorbed by rectal mucosa bypasses first-pass metabolism in the liver, the organ responsible for metabolizing alcohol into its less toxic byproducts. And this causes a rapid elevation of blood alcohol content, which can be potentially life-threatening. But mostly, it's just gross, and I can't even begin to imagine how much that burns, so just don't do it, okay? Finally, there's a lot of different products not intended for human consumption that also have alcohol in them, and these are also prone to abuse. Now, this is way more common than butt-chugging, and also a lot more dangerous. While products like mouthwash generally contain ethanol like your traditional beer and wine, the isopropyl alcohol in many hand sanitizers, the methanol in moonshine, or poorly distilled alcohol, and the ethylene glycol in antifreeze are much more toxic. The problem is, They get you drunk just like ethanol does, so they're often consumed by people with a lack of access to traditional alcoholic beverages. Quick review before we move on. How much pure alcohol is considered one drink? One standard drink contains 0.6 fluid ounces of pure alcohol. Part 5. How is alcohol use disorder diagnosed? The DSM-5 is a set of criteria for diagnosing alcohol use disorders, and in general, they're pretty similar to those of other substance abuse disorders. There's acute alcohol intoxication, and I'm going to let you guys try this one on for size. What are the physiologic effects of acute alcohol intoxication? All right, some of you answered that a little fast. Acute alcohol intoxication can act as a CNS depressant. Therefore, it can present with slurred speech, unsteady gait, nystagmus, and impaired coordination, as well as impaired attention and memory. Severe intoxication can lead to stupor, respiratory depression, loss of consciousness, and in extreme cases, even coma and death. It's worth noting that habitual drinkers with a high alcohol tolerance may actually be more impaired than they appear on the surface. Now, although acute intoxication isn't necessarily a sign of alcohol abuse or a medical problem requiring intervention, it's definitely associated with a fair amount of morbidity and mortality. The main lethal consequences of severe intoxication are respiratory depression, loss of protective airway reflexes that cause you to aspirate your own vomit, and most importantly, doing stupid shit that gets you killed. That last one probably kills more people than the other two, what with all the drunk driving, drunk fighting, and the other dumb stunts people do to show off to all their drunk friends. Now, a lot of people occasionally find themselves intoxicated, but when a person repeatedly craves and consumes alcohol in larger quantities without being able to cut down on their drinking, they're at risk of developing alcohol use disorder. Just like with any other type of substance abuse, a patient needs to exhibit two of 11 diagnostic criteria over a 12-month period of time to fit the DSM-5 definition of alcohol use disorder. 
Three of the criteria are the obvious physiologic signs of addiction that most of us associate with alcohol abuse. There's cravings, or feeling a strong desire or urge to use the substance, tolerance, or requiring progressively more alcohol to achieve the same effects, and withdrawal symptoms that are relieved by consuming more alcohol. Three of the criteria revolve around the psychological lack of control over drinking. There's often drinking more or for a longer period of time than intended, persistent desire or unsuccessful attempts to cut down on or control drinking, and continuing to drink despite knowing that there is a persistent physical or psychological problem that is made worse by the drinking. And a full five criteria revolve around the negative social and situational impact of drinking. There's spending a lot of time obtaining, using, or recovering from alcohol use, failing to meet important obligations at work, school, or home because of recurrent substance use, continuing to use the substance despite recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or made worse by its use, giving up or reducing important social, occupational, or recreational activities because of substance use, and recurrent use of the substance in situations where it's physically hazardous. And yeah, I know it's a lot of criteria to remember, but it's the same general list for all forms of substance abuse. The important thing to remember when assessing for alcohol abuse is to ask not only about cravings, tolerance, and withdrawal, but also about the three criteria involving lack of control and the five criteria involving negative social and situational impact. And since you only need to meet two criteria over a 12-month period of time, you can see how an individual with none of the obvious markers of physical addiction can actually meet criteria for alcohol use disorder pretty easily. Part 6. Differential Diagnosis and Comorbid Conditions The most important clinical distinctions to make are between alcohol intoxication, alcohol use disorder, and alcohol withdrawal. Alcohol use disorder is distinct from acute alcohol intoxication and withdrawal because it reflects a pervasive pattern of alcohol use that affects normal daily function. In my line of work as an emergency physician, patients with AUD frequently present either intoxicated or in withdrawal, so it becomes important to screen for daily alcohol intake to screen for all three. Now, I know we haven't covered alcohol withdrawal yet, but let's review what you know. What are some of the symptoms you associate with alcohol withdrawal? Symptoms include agitation, tremor, insomnia, nausea, vomiting, and anxiety. Withdrawal usually begins after 4 to 12 hours of abstinence, and these symptoms can be unpleasant enough for the person to start drinking again or take a closely related substance like a benzodiazepine in order to relieve or avoid the withdrawal symptoms. Over the first 48 hours, these patients may experience hallucinations and even seizures, but after 48 hours, a small percent develop the life-threatening syndrome known as delirium tremens. This syndrome is characterized by true delirium rather than simply hallucinating, as well as a higher risk of seizures, fever, and autonomic instability. It's especially important to understand a person's alcohol use history when they're admitted for other medical problems. Otherwise, they can develop delirium tremens while in the hospital, simply from being cut off from their normal alcohol supply. The physiologic effects of alcohol withdrawal usually last about four to five days after the person's last drink, but can linger for significantly longer. And the psychological desire to drink may never fully go away. It's important to understand that alcohol use can cause or exacerbate other related psychiatric disorders, including psychosis, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, sexual dysfunction, and neurocognitive dysfunction. And these disorders have a similar presentation whether or not they're related to alcohol. But when alcohol is related, 
there's a temporal relationship with alcohol intoxication or withdrawal. And you'll need to discern whether these behavioral conditions persist outside of alcohol abuse, because then they may require a different treatment strategy. Part 7. How is alcohol use disorder assessed and treated? So any clinician, not just a psychiatrist, can play a vital role in identification and intervention for alcohol use disorders. If you suspect a patient has alcohol use disorder, a thorough history and physical are vital. As part of your history taking, consider using the Audit C questionnaire as a tool to screen for alcohol abuse. It stands for Alcohol Use Disorder Identification Test, Concise, and consists of three questions. One, how often do you have a drink containing alcohol? Two, how many standard drinks containing alcohol do you have on a typical day? Three, how often do you have six or more drinks on one occasion? With your exam, be sure to assess for signs of liver disease, like jaundice or hepatosplenomegaly. During withdrawal, make sure to assess the patient for anxiety, delirium, tremors, diaphoresis, and tachycardia. Based on the patient's history and physical exam, you can identify hazardous drinking patterns and move towards treatment. There's psychosocial interventions that include cognitive behavioral therapy, 12-step facilitation with groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, and motivational interviewing. Medications for combating alcohol use disorders include disulfiram, which causes unpleasant symptoms when a person drinks alcohol, and naltrexone and acamprosate, both of which help reduce cravings. All right, one final question to see if you're paying attention. How does disulfiram work? It causes an unpleasant reaction upon alcohol consumption. So let's see if we've completed our goals for the lesson. First, can you identify the demographics most at risk of developing alcohol use disorder? Alcohol use disorder is particularly common amongst younger adults, men, and Native American people. The peak age of onset for AUD is in the early to mid-20s. And finally, both biological and psychosocial factors can influence the risk for developing alcohol use disorder. Second, can you list the physiologic effects of ethanol on the body? Alcohol indirectly stimulates GABA receptors, augmenting the inhibitory neurotransmitter activity. Alcohol intoxication presents with slurred speech, gait disturbance, disinhibited behavior, and memory impairment, to name a few. Over time, chronic abuse of alcohol can lead to consequences affecting the GI tract, like chronic liver failure and cirrhosis, but it can also cause malnutrition, vitamin deficiencies, especially thymine and folate, electrolyte abnormalities, and impaired cognition and concentration. Next, can you describe the DSM-5 diagnostic features and criteria for alcohol use disorder? So first off, alcohol use disorder is roughly defined by pervasive alcohol use that affects daily functioning. The DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for alcohol use disorder are the same as for substance use disorder and require two of 11 characteristic features of substance abuse to be present over 12 months. Now, I'm not going to repeat all the features here again, but just remember that in addition to the three intuitive features of cravings, tolerance, and withdrawal, there are three features that describe a psychological lack of control over drinking and five features that describe the negative social and situational effects of drinking. Finally, can you describe the evidence-based assessments and treatment approaches for alcohol use disorder? Psychosocial intervention for alcohol abuse include cognitive behavioral therapy, 
12-step programs, and motivational interviewing. Pharmacologic intervention for alcohol abuse include disulfiram, acamprosate, and naltrexone. Armed with your newfound knowledge, let's revisit our patient for the beginning of the episode. A college student is brought into the emergency department for alcohol intoxication, and his resident advisor expresses concern about the student's continued drinking despite repeated hospitalizations and the threat of losing his housing. What questions will you ask your patient when he wakes up to assess his risk for alcohol use disorder, and what treatment would you recommend? The student's continued alcohol use, despite repeated hospitalizations and the social consequence of losing his on-campus housing, already fulfills two criteria for alcohol use disorder. After several hours of observation, he awakens, and he confirms that his pattern of drinking began about a year and a half ago when he joined a fraternity. With that timeline, you inform the patient that his alcohol use, despite numerous social and situational consequences, constitutes clinically problematic alcohol use disorder. The patient gives you a list of excuses about how all college students drink, and it's not like he's an alcoholic or anything. But he stops to think when you ask him whether or not he feels like he's in control of how drunk he gets, and whether or not this relates to the bad situation he's gotten himself into. When you discharge him, he accepts referral information for Alcoholics Anonymous and a nearby clinic. Even if he doesn't follow your advice right away, you suspect you've given him a lot to think about at a critical time in his life. And that's our show. Make sure to like and subscribe if you like what you heard. And remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the Fulbricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends, 